Thank you, James. Let us pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for this incredible day. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for the warm weather, the sunshine. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we ask now, we invite you to be our teacher. Jesus, in the same way and even in a deeper, greater way, open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to understand your word. The way you did those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you to be our teacher. Bring encouragement to those who need it. Bring comfort to those who need it. Father, bring conviction. Conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. More than anything, Jesus, be glorified. Father, pour your great love into our hearts. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a joy and privilege. I'm going to share a couple of pastor privilege announcements and a couple of commentaries. A few years ago, when we had the old baptismal, the water was very cold, about 40 degrees cold is what it felt like. And dropping people down, baptizing people down into the water, their eyes would just get huge because it was freezing. It's now super hot. It's almost like a sauna. I feel so relaxed now. I'm going to go take a nap. But I am grateful just for the facilities department, just their work. And Yang, I do want to say congratulations again. It's just awesome. Uh, the announcement I was going to give, but Wayne was so anointed by Holy Spirit with the drums that I was just like, well, just go ahead and keep going. Was If you've never been baptized by immersion, uh, we'd love to baptize you. And uh, feel free, you can talk with me. Chris Reed's on vacation this week. You can talk with a friend that brought you today. Uh, we would love to have that conversation. So if you've never been baptized by immersion, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you about it. We don't have like a set Sunday where we do baptisms. As you see, we do it quite often. And it's just an incredible privilege. So that's the first one. The second one, and I'll share a little bit more next week, but I'm going to be going on sabbatical for the month of June. And I'm so grateful for our church just giving us the opportunity to do that, to be able to step back uh, to uh, really seek the Lord and uh, just his vision for me, for my family, for our church. So please pray for me while, I, while I'm gone in June. Even though I won't be here physically, I will in spirit. And uh, so, but do pray for us. Pray for our family. As you know, my mom is going through a lot of very serious health issues. So I'm very grateful for even that time, the extra time I'll have with her. And we will be doing some traveling. So, but anyway, I hope no one has Pastor Sethi's here. And that's Pastoritis in English, which, well, if the pastor ain't going to be there, I'm not coming either. So anyway, um, but do pray for us. We'll definitely be praying for you all during the month of June. And we're going to miss you dearly. I love Sunday. Sundays is my favorite day of the week. And so you'll be dearly missed, but you'll definitely be prayed for. And uh, we'll see each other next week. And next week is Domingo de Español. As Andrew announced, it's Spanish Sunday. It's an incredible opportunity for us to invite our Spanish brothers and sisters, future brothers and sisters in the Lord to worship with us on Sunday. I know that Noel and Leo, were they were going all up and down the streets this morning passing out flyers. So if you know anybody that speaks Spanish, invite them to come next Sunday. Uh, I had three tree guys out at our house this past week, and I invited them all to come. They said they'd come. We'll see if they do or not. But it's also a great opportunity for us gringos who don't know Spanish uh, to know what it's like in one small way 
to worship and be in a different culture, different language. Uh, we've done these two or three times now. It's an incredible time. So if you don't speak Spanish, don't use that as an excuse. The service technically is in Spanglish or Inglanol. Uh, for those who've been here, we blended up pretty good. Uh, but I'm super excited. So pray for us on that. But it's just a great, wonderful time. And we need to pray and thank our Trail and our worship team and choir. They've been working hard. Um, for those who've been taking score, Samuel and Shaddai Wegesbacker, they've left. And Samuel is one of our strong Spanish speakers and singers. And uh, so we're just praying, trusting the Lord that others are stepping in, and they are. So I'm very grateful for our choir and worship team and Trail for being flex and uh, being willing to take a deeper step out into the deeper end of the pool in another language. It's just an awesome privilege that we have. Uh, just to worship and have other cultures as part of our fellowship here, Chinese, Spanish. Uh, Niyanani, I'm not sure what language you were speaking there. I know you're fluent in about 10 languages, so you'll have to share with us which one you were praying in at the beginning. So it's just an awesome privilege that we have here in Nashville with all these cultures that Jesus is giving us. Uh, it's just amazing. So, And with that, we're going to look at Ruth chapter 4. And it's a multicultural family. Ruth was a Moabitess. Naomi was an Israelite. And if you've been paying attention, it's unbelievable what God is doing. But Ruth chapter 4, really quick, it's only four chapters. I want to encourage you, read this book over and over and over. In chapter 1, I challenged all of us, have you ever experienced great grief or loss? And how have you responded to that grief? How have you responded to that loss? All of us, the past 15, 16 months, we have experienced loss and change within our culture, everything with COVID, some much more than others. And it's a grief. Several of our brothers and sisters here have experienced great and significant loss over the past year. But all of us have experienced loss. All of us experienced grief of some kind. How have we responded And Chris challenged us when we go through hard, difficult times, how do we respond? And the importance of having accountability and mentors, men and women investing in our lives who are further down the road with Jesus. But then we're not going to be the Dead Sea where we only receive, 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 gimme, gimme, gimme. I haven't shared this in a long time, but if you have two ticks and no dog, those ticks are going to have a problem. May we not be spiritual ticks, just looking for what we get out of it. But may we be like a river filled with Holy Spirit, where we receive from the Lord, we receive from others, but then we give it away. And be a conduit of Holy Spirit flowing in and through us. So the importance of being a mentor, being a mentee, the importance of perseverance and pressing on, the importance of honor and integrity, doing what's right because it's right. But there's three things from last week that I want to share with you guys. The first one is this. It's having a mentor-mentee relationship. Who are you mentoring? Who's mentoring you? The second one is courageous faith. And the third one is integrity and action. Noble character, both Ruth and Boaz, We're known as men and women of noble character. Some of the key phrases, key words in this entire small little book of Ruth is honor, kindness, and redemption. Those three words, honor, 
kindness, and redemption are some of the major key words in this tiny little book. And culturally, as we come to chapter 4, real quickly, Ruth, back centuries ago, it's its own little book in the Bible. The Bible is a collection of books, 66 books. But Ruth used to be an appendix of the book of Judges. And Judges is right before Ruth. And in the book of Judges, in chapter 17, verse 6, in Judges 17, 6, it says, in those days, whoever wrote the book of Judges, they're not sure. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. So whoever wrote the book of Judges was living during the time of the kings in Israel. Saul, David, Solomon, one of the kings. Hundreds of years after the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, but look what it says. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Everyone. Say everyone. Every, this side did a bad job. Great job, guys. Everyone. Everyone did whatever. Say whatever. Still need some work, guys. Whatever seems right to them. Sounds like 21st century United States to me. Sounds like 21st century Mexico to me. In Spanish, we say, ah, cada quien a su lado, each one to his own. And we truly are living in a time today where everyone is just doing what they seem right. And that was the time of Judges. In the time of Judges, when everyone did what seemed right to them, it's saying, and you read the book of Judges, it's a depressing book of incredible spiritual apathy, bankruptcy, spiritual, emotional, social, familial bankruptcy in every way. The book of Judges truly shows us how sinful and wicked we are. The Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth. And right at the end of Judges, we have Ruth, hope, redemption. If you don't know the story, Naomi, who is the mother-in-law of Ruth, she and her husband Elimelech with their two boys, probably teenagers or young men, there was a great severe famine, and they traveled to Moab, which was about 90 miles away. doesn't seem long, far, far away for us, but when you're walking, that's a long way away. They travel because of a famine, so they're going through a severe drought, a severe famine. They move to Moab, and the two boys, they get married. And then Elimelech dies, that's Naomi's husband, and then her two boys die. And so we're left with three widows. And back during the time of Naomi and Ruth, if you were a widow, you were in dire straits. There was no social security. There was no social systems or help the way there are today. And this woman, Naomi, she had no sons. So there was no one to protect her, to watch over her, to provide for her, to care for her. That might seem very chauvinistic, male chauvinistic, but it's not. It's just the reality of the way the culture was back then. Hopelessness. Widow and childlessness back in the time of Ruth and Naomi was a severe, dire situation. She hears that there's food back in Bethlehem, which is where she's from. Now, Bethlehem back at that time was just a podunk cow town or donkey town or sheep town. Nothing. King David wasn't even existing yet. She returns. And in Ruth chapter 1, when she returns, she returns with Ruth, her one daughter-in-law, because Orpah decided to stay. And she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. 
And she declares and says that God's hand is against me. The Lord's hand is against me. The Almighty has come against me and my life is bitter. And one of our greatest temptations as humans is when we go through suffering and we go through loss is to have a bitter spirit. And we call out, we cry out to God, why, 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 why? Have you ever asked God why for a loss? Ooh, not a whole lot of honest people here. If you have, raise your hand. I have. Why? Simon is really honest. He's got both hands and feet raised. Why? And some of us are too afraid to ask God that question because we're afraid he might find out what we really think and feel. He already knows. And so Naomi is bitter for what she's lost. But instead of throwing in the towel, she begins to trust the Lord. She encourages her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is also a widow, no children, and now a foreigner. Ruth looks different, talks different, sounds different, is different from the Israelites. Have you ever been in a situation where you were different? And because you were different, people isolated you, set you apart, didn't consider you, forgot about you? The temptation when we go through great loss and great trials to get coupled with being different, the temptation to fall into self-pity and the spirit of victimhood is as big as the Pacific Ocean. These two women could have easily fallen into, I'm just a victim. I'm just a victim. And they are. They are a victim, just like we're all victims. We all suffer the consequences of other people's foolish, sinful decisions. We are all victims. We're also victims of our own decisions. That is life, and life isn't fair. And if you fight for being fair, you will always lose. We want to fight for what is true and just and righteous and humble and good. But instead of falling into the victim mentality of woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, and I'm not making light of loss, but these two women could have easily thrown up the white flag and live the rest of their days in victimhood, always making excuses for their situation because of the horrible situation that they were in, and it wasn't their fault. But instead, they trusted the Lord, and they sought his face even when it was hard. And it just so happened that Ruth went to work in the field of a man named Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz was one of the family redeemers of Naomi's family. And I'll explain family redeemer in a minute. And if you're paying attention to the word happened, it wasn't a coincidence, but it was what we say in Spanish, a diosidencia. It was a God thing because God is sovereign. And even in our own sin and our own loss and the evil of this world, God still works and moves and has his way. His ways are not our ways. His ways are far higher and greater than ours. And many times we can't understand it nor comprehend it, but he still calls us to get out of the boat and fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him. And so here we have, in chapter 3, 
Ruth basically took off her clothes of mourning and of grieving the loss of her first husband. And she tells Boaz, I am ready to get married and you're the family redeemer. And Boaz tells her, there is one closer to you than me. But wait, and I will fix the situation. You see, during the time of Ruth and Naomi, family redeemer was a concept found in the Old Testament. Where if the husband dies and he leaves his wife, now a widow, alive, It was the responsibility of one of the brothers of the dead husband to marry that wife. Not to prolificate polygamy, but to carry on and honor the family name of the dead husband. He was to marry that wife and have children so that there would be heirs for the dead father. He would protect and watch over this widow, now his wife. And when the children were grown, all the property that belonged to the dead husband would be passed over to the children. It was a way of protecting and taking care of widows during a time when they're during a very difficult, challenging time in life. And so because Naomi's husband died, because Ruth's husband died, a family redeemer needed to step up. Boaz was one of those. But he wasn't the closest. So where was the closest family redeemer? What was he doing? Why wasn't he in the picture yet? We'll find out here in verse 1. Let's stand again. You guys are slouching too much. Seems like y'all have gotten in the tub too. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of his, of the town elders and he said, sit here. And they sat down. It makes me wonder what type of man Boaz was. He's given all the orders. We may sit. Let's sit down. Just as Boaz commands us. Let's sit down. Boaz goes to the city gate and the city gate is the place where many times contracts would happen and decisions of the leadership of the, of, the, of the city council would take place at the city gate. So Boaz goes to the city gate and it says that the family redeemer who Boaz had talked to Ruth about in chapter three had walked by. And it says right here, it says here in verse one, he says, come over here and sit down. Now there's a word in Hebrew. I'm going to teach you two words in Hebrew. It's Peloni Almoni. It's going to be on the screen. Peloni. Say it. Peloni. Almoni. That means Mr. So-and-so. I wish we could read ancient Hebrew because in ancient Hebrew, Boaz is basically saying, hey, come over here, so-and-so, and sit down. We got to have a conversation. Is that not funny? I mean, y'all are dead. Come on. Peloni Almoni. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, get over here. Was there disrespect? I don't know. But basically the author of Ruth is saying this family redeemer who should have stepped up to the plate and hit a home run was not doing his responsibility. And Boaz calls the elders of this little town. Hey, come here. You sit down. It makes me think, okay, Boaz was wealthy. He was a man of noble character. He was integrous. He also was in charge. And he sits these elders down. Why? For accountability and integrity. 
Why do most people, when they do evil, they do it behind closed doors and in the dark? Why? They don't want anybody to see. But right here, this noble man, Boaz, in front of everyone with great accountability, with great integrity, he is revealing what he's going to do. So he calls the family redeemer to account. And we've read it. James read it in Chinese. I can't wait to get to heaven when we'll all be speaking Spanish. He said to the redeemer in verse 3, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belongs to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do, if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it. And I'm next after you. Once again, Boaz is submitting himself to authority. And we've talked about that. How hard is it for us to submit to one another? You know that the scriptures command us to submit one to another. We might not like it. We might even disagree. But unless it's immoral, unethical, and anti-biblical, we need to submit to our governing authorities. If it's our boss, our teacher, if it's the government. Ooh, I just opened a can of worms, right? We'll talk about that later. But we should. We're called to submit one to another. And here Boaz is submitting to not only the culture, but the biblical mandates of his day. And he's calling out this family redeemer. You need to buy this field. And if you don't, I will. Boaz is willing to sacrifice. Because this commitment is huge. It's not about the benefit of just getting Naomi's property. There's a huge price to this commitment. We kind of know about it, but this closer family redeemer doesn't yet. At the end of verse 5, I want to redeem it, he says. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on that day, you buy the field from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Oh, by the way, there's a widow involved. And there's also a widow mother-in-law involved. No mother-in-law jokes, okay? How does this family redeemer respond? Verse 6, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. The key word in verse in chapter 4, redeem. Say it, redeem. We don't know why acquiring Naomi's property and acquiring Ruth as another wife and acquiring Naomi, we don't know how or why it would ruin this family redeemer's inheritance. We don't know. It doesn't say. We could probably go in 10 different directions of why. Maybe he doesn't want to take on the full responsibility of having another wife with more kids. 
Maybe he doesn't want to take on the loss he'll experience. He's got to sacrifice for 20 years, 25 years until the kids are are born and raised and then giving it back. Maybe he's just unable to do it, actually unable to do it. Or maybe he's very self-centered and selfish. We don't know why. But he's unwilling to redeem and to fulfill the call that scripture, it's in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, is calling this man to fulfill. And he says, no. Woe to us when we hear God's voice and say no. However big or small. He says no. Verse 7, at an earlier period in Israel, a man removed the sandal and gave it to the other party in order to take to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer moved his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Now that's kind of weird. Taking off your sandal, your shoe, and giving it to the other person. It's like handing over the keys to the house. It's symbolic that this family redeemer could no longer walk on the property that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi. He had every right to until he handed those, that sandal over. It's symbolic of authority and power and ownership. Is symbolic of the redemption that was coming. And remember, this is done all in front of the witnesses, in front of the elders of the town. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I'm buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malan. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malan's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property. And I believe Boaz and Ruth, I believe they loved each other. But look at the sacrifice that Boaz is giving and doing. It's for the namesake of Malan, who's already dead. It's the honor. How often do we live for the honor of others? To lift others up. To think of others. What's the first thought that comes to your mind when you wake up in the morning? I'll bet you a steak dinner, it's about yourself. Oh, I'm tired. Verse 11, all the people who are at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses and may the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah. Ephrathah is like the state or the county of Israel where Bethlehem is located. And your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah. Because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. There's this amazing blessing. And we as North Americans, we don't understand. I know I don't get it about the power of words and the power of blessing. That phrase, and I said this last week, sticks and stones may break our bones, but names will never hurt me. That is malarkey. It's baloney. It's filth. Words and names have power. There is still pain in my own heart for words that were spoken of me as a three and four-year-old. 
that only Jesus can heal. And there's also power and great blessing. And the elders and the witnesses here are blessing Boaz and they're blessing Ruth. And they mention Rachel and Leah. They were the mothers of Israel. And Perez and Tamar. There is an amazing blessing. And so that you guys know, Judah of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah was the largest. And centuries before this event, Jacob prophesied over Judah that the one who would rule would come out of Judah. Do you remember when Jesus walked along the road of Emmaus with the two disciples? And it said from the beginning, from Moses and the prophets, he shared about everything that the scriptures said about the Christ. Here's another one. Bethlehem of Ephrathah of Judah. This amazing blessing. And it says in verse 13 that Boaz, he took Ruth and she became his wife and he slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you Do you remember what Ruth said to Naomi? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Do you remember Ruth's blessing over her mother-in-law and the commitment that Ruth had not only to Naomi, but to our heavenly father, Yahweh? And then they go on to say, indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven Sons. Seven is the number for perfection. Complete wholeness. The blessing that these people, these women are giving over Naomi, over Ruth, over Boaz is amazing. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you remember in in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, when Ruth came back? She came back to Bethlehem with nothing, and everybody's freaking out. Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And John, if you could put Ruth 1, 20 and 21 up on the screen, it'd be awesome. And Naomi says, don't call me. Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. I am bitter because the Lord's hand is against me. The Almighty is against me. I left full and I've come back empty. And these ladies right here are saying that this son, actually this daughter-in-law of yours is better than seven sons. And out of God's great gracious hand, He's given you a son who is the grandfather of King David. You see, we're not sure when Ruth was written, but it was probably written during the time of King Solomon, David's son, or even later than that. And it's reflecting back that God, and this is amazing, I don't have a verse for it, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, I believe. 
It says God chooses the weak things, the despised things, the foolish things of this earth to shame the strong, to shame the wise. You see, God is a God of widows and of orphans. He's a God of foreigners. And God chooses out of his great sovereignty, out of the way he works and moves in great loss and grief. And he takes Ruth the Moabitess, who is part of a tribe, a clan, a people group that were enemies of Israel. And he um, intertwines her into the line of Judah, not only the line of Judah, but in the town of Bethlehem. And Ruth becomes the great grandmother of King David who was definitely not perfect, a horrible, wretched sinner, yet he was a man after God's own heart. And as Jacob, centuries before, prophesied that out of Judah would would come the one who would rule, and out of the house of David would become the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. So centuries later, about 1,200 years later, no, 1,100 years later, comes Jesus. And where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. We have this amazing work of how God is moving. And there's so many things that we could unpack. And worship team, come on up. But there's four things. There are four things I want to hit on. And there are several verses. And we'll go quick. The first one is this. God calls us to difficult challenges. God will call us to very difficult challenges and tasks. Yesterday, we were at some dear friends of ours. It's one of Sammy's best friends, just graduated high school. And the grandfather of this friend was one of the most significant men in my life. He discipled me when I was in high school. His name is Dr. Curlin, and he challenged his, son, his grandson, Finn, to do the hard thing, to not go out and search for the hard thing. God will give us the hard thing. But many times in life, what is worth it, what is of value is hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. Do the hard thing. And it says in 2 Timothy that if anyone wants to live a godly life, they will be persecuted. It is hard to follow the Lord Jesus. It is hard to walk the way Jesus walks. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he says, do all runners who run win the prize? No, only one wins the prize. So I discipline and I beat my body to run and to win the prize. The race that God has called us to, it's a challenge. It's very hard to run. And we will experience great trials and great loss. It will be very difficult. God did not create us to be happy. He created us to be holy, to be set apart for him. Now, joy and happiness are part of the Christian life, but that will not be fulfilled until we are in his presence forever. Because he is our joy. But while we walk this earth, it'll be very difficult, very challenging. Do you need the seat? Are you good? Okay. The is around you. In 1 John chapter 2, 5 and 6, John, the great apostle, he is saying, he says, those who love Jesus will obey Jesus. And if anyone, this is how we know we're in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Jesus calls us to walk as he walked. That's to bless our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, to submit one to another, to be the least, to be the last, 
to be servant of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The third thing is this. Our labor is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. Jesus is the righteous judge. We have a heavenly father who loves to give good gifts. And I know in the heart of Jesus, when he sees us, he longs to say with arms wide open, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul commands the Corinthian church. He says, therefore, stand firm. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God sees our obedience. He sees our heart. He knows the longings of our heart. And he's our greatest cheerleader. He is for us. He is not against us, as we sang earlier in the service. He's our greatest cheerleader, and he's cheering us on to run the race. We don't need to die the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, because Jesus did it all on the cross. And it's his righteousness, it is his life that fills us and gives us life. The fourth thing is this, Jesus is our great family redeemer. The way Boaz redeemed Naomi and Ruth. Jesus is not like that other family redeemer who said he couldn't do it. Jesus paid it all. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, that he shared in our flesh and blood. He lived as a human, as one of us, to crush the power of him who held death. That's the devil. To set us free and to make us heirs. And because he himself suffered, he is able to help those who are tempted. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he himself has gone before us and has made the way. So let's stand. And I've got a couple couple questions to ask us all. And there'll be a couple of our prayer team will be over here to my left, your right, during this last song. I've got three questions. They might sound strange to you. The first one is this. How has Jesus redeemed your life? How has he redeemed your life? The second question is very similar. It's a little bit different. How is Jesus redeeming your life today? And I might not be just talking about salvation, but friendships, the renewing of your mind, Maybe it's loss you've experienced this year, and he's redeeming it. It could be a very sinful past. It could be broken dreams. It could be your own weakness, your own sin. The third question is this. How does Jesus need to redeem your life?
fear, 